The following audio is from Overland Park Community Church. More information about OPCC can be found online at overlandpark.cc. Hello, I'm Pat Butler, and uh, I wasn't sure if he was going to mention the CIA part, so I might as well uh, get that out on the table. Um, I grew up here in Kansas City, uh, went to Shawnee Mission West. My wife and I both went there. Yes, okay. Yeah, 90, so I'm, I'm old now at this point. Um, but let's see, uh, went up to KU, got my undergrad in mathematics. And uh, my wife and I got married uh, right after we graduated undergrad there at the age of 22. And we moved up to Chicago. I went to grad school up at Northwestern in statistics. Came back down here and was working for Hallmark cards when 9-11 occurred. And, uh, you know, my grandfather had fought in World War II. He had signed up the day after, after Pearl Harbor. And my dad had served during the Vietnam era, and uh, I really felt compelled to go do something. But, you know, I'm a math guy, and I'm almost 30 at the time when uh, 9-11 went down. And so I said, like, I don't know what God would want me to do here. Like, it doesn't feel like I should go sign up for the military tomorrow. But uh, read the next morning that there was a shortage of mathematicians at the CIA. And I thought to myself, I have no idea what a math guy does at the CIA, no, no clue at all, but I went into work and I said, hey, I, I'm going to send my resume into the CIA today. I, I like working here at Hallmark, but I'd rather do that. And uh, turns out about 400,000 other people had that same idea in, in the, uh, uh, the week or so after 9-11, but I made it through that funnel. And I ultimately became the uh, senior technical targeting officer against Al-Qaeda external operations. So anything that Al-Qaeda had planned external to Pakistan, Afghanistan, or Iraq, I had the lead from a big data analytics standpoint. Basically, sort of simplistically think, my job was to find the bad guys and get rid of them. And uh, uh, that's what I did uh, for you know the, the decade after 9-11. And, uh, Long story short, I ended up starting a software company designing next generation targeting and in, in artificial intelligence tools and uh, sold that company into a larger defense contractor a few years back and uh, moved back to the Kansas City area, uh, but still continue working in that field. In fact, I just got back Friday night from DC meeting with all of, of that sort of world. So it is a different world and I'm gonna use lots of battle imagery. Like you can see like a, a battle here and I call this the battle for the truth, and, and, and I probably will cry. I, I never cry. Like if, if my wife, she's going to be at second service, but if she were here, she would say like, probably I'm one of the least emotional, high logic type people there is, and that's kind of true. Um, but today we're talking about the things I really care about, which is the church, the, um, the country, what's happening in the world, and our kids in my family, and that'll make me sad or excited or emotional, and I really just want you to realize the battle we're in and, and to, to, to engage in that. So I'm going to start uh, uh, by, by diving into a couple battles. So we're going to look at battles in U.S. history, and I want you to think to yourself, large battles from back in your history memories, and if any of you like war movies and that sort of thing, Throw out some of the big battles where you think our casualty rate was high. Gettysburg. Okay, we're going to look at Gettysburg three slides from now. So Gettysburg, major, obviously the pivotal moment of the Civil War. Okay, uh, we'll look at, at the, the, what's another battle? Throw another big one out. Antietam. Okay, so Antietam had the most losses in the Civil War. 
Um, I think the casualty rate, if I'm remembering right, slightly below that in terms of percentages that, that, that died or were wounded at Antietam. Um, but it's right there with Gettysburg. Very, very comparable numbers. Other ones, non-Civil War. What? D-Day. That's the ne- we're going to look at that in just one second. So D-Day, if you saw Saving Private Ryan, Normandy Invasion, June 6, 1944, you remember that scene as they're coming in in black and white with the boats and all of that. That's D-Day. Okay, so let's, let's put this up. This is D-Day. This is the fact that 6% of U.S. and allied forces were wounded or killed on June 6, 1944. That's what that would look like. Okay, let's advance to the next one. Okay, this one's near and dear to my heart. My grandfather, I said, signed up the day after Pearl Harbor. He went into the Marines. He went and fought in this battle, Guadalcanal, where 25% of the U.S. soldiers were wounded or killed coming off of Guadalcanal. Obviously, my grandfather wasn't killed, but he came off the island. Now, none of us are, are big guys, but he came off the island at about 90 pounds, because there was a Japanese blockade and, and, and they starved, basically. Um, uh, but anyway, that's Guadalcanal. Go to the next one. So this is Gettysburg that you mentioned earlier. Um, the uh, left side represents the, the, the um, northern troops, where they lost just under a quarter. And uh, the right side represents the Confederacy, where they lost a little over a third of their troops in that battle. Okay, that's a bad one. Now, here's the worst one I could find from World War II. This is Iwo Jima. Iwo Jima, the famous raising of the flags, um, all all of that, where we finally captured the airfield from which we could fly the bombers to hit Tokyo and the rest of Japan. 40% of U.S. troops wounded or killed during the Battle of Iwo Jima. Okay, slide forward to the next one. Okay, two out of three, what would this be? And this is my transition to what's really happening in the world. 66% of kids who grew up in evangelical Christian churches like this one will fall away in their high school or college years and most will never come back. Okay, that's worse than any battle in any U.S. history. That is a higher rate of casualties. Go to the next one. Nine out of 10. If you go to even so-called born-again evangelical Christians and ask them a series of basic statements about the Bible and about the truth of God's word, only 10% can answer them. And these are the statements. Let's just go through them quickly. Jesus Christ led a sinless life while on earth. You kind of have to believe that. That's an important one. Go on. The Bible is accurate throughout. Keep going. I consider my faith very important. I have made a personal commitment to Jesus Christ, and that commitment is still important to me now. I have confessed my sins and have accepted Jesus Christ as my Savior. I believe that because of this confession and acceptance, I will spend eternity in heaven. I have a responsibility to share that good news with others. Salvation is attained through God's grace. It's a gift to me, not human effort or good works. God is omniscient, omnipotent, omnibeneficent, the creator of the universe, and is still ruling it today. And Satan exists as a living entity. Only 10% of so-called evangelical Christians agree with those statements. 90% mess up somewhere in there. 
And those are the basics. That's not the entirety of God's word. That's just like a little sliver, the important, obviously super important parts, uh, um, but it's still only a sliver. And so if you kind of sum it up, 66% of our children are being snatched from us and only 10% of us are clinging to the truth. That is bad, bad situation that the American church is in today. Okay, so if you go to like a couple simple ways to think about this, go ahead. You would be two and a half times more likely to survive Gettysburg than to survive as a kid growing up in an evangelical church today. Now, I have, uh, I have four kids. My son, Ben's 25. My son, Ryan's 22. My daughter, Paige, 20. My son, Joe's 16. So three of those are in that sort of military. If a battle began tomorrow, they might need to go serve, right? And a lot, and one of them, my oldest, is already kind of getting in the same world I was in. But if you say, um, do I want them to go fight in Gettysburg? I'd be terrified as a dad. I wouldn't want them. But do you know it's two and a half times worse just trying to raise your kids today in this culture? And if you go to the next one, you would have been 15 times more likely to survive D-Day, what you saw in Saving Private Ryan, than to just hold on to basic Christian truths today in the evangelical church. That's the bad news. <laughs> so I'm going to transition to what in the world do we do about this? But the big picture is it's a real battle and we are losing, Okay. That's the bad news. So we're gonna now try to say, what can we do about that? How do we save our kids? How do we hold on to them? And so let's start with a, a, a couple. I, I've got my passage here. I really don't wanna turn my back too often, so I've got, I've got my notes here. But 1 Peter 5.8 says, famous verse. I'm gonna mostly put up some famous verses you will have heard if you grew up in a Christian church. And if you're new to the faith, good ones to memorize, good ones to learn. But 1 Peter 5.8, Peter writes, be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Satan and his forces are evil, real, and they're going after our church, our kids, our culture. Okay, and when it says be of sober spirit, it's kind of the mood I'm trying to put you in right here, which is, and, and honestly, like this, I, I, I'll get excited. I care about these things. I hope the Holy Spirit speaks through me to just even a few of you because we gotta wake up. We gotta get ready, but he's trying to kill us. Remember, Jesus said he comes to steal, kill, and destroy. That's who he is. He was a murderer and a liar from the beginning, and he will always be that, okay? Jude says, at the beginning of his short book, Jude, younger brother of Jesus, if you didn't know that little part of the story, I felt the necessity to write to you, appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed. And then he goes on to describe basically wolves in sheep's clothing who've crept into the church. And here we're talking about like the year 60 or 70 AD. They've already crept in. And it's only accelerated in the 2,000 years past that time. 
okay? So we are expected to fight earnestly for the faith. It has the article the, the faith, meaning the core doctrines, those sort of 10% things that we just went through that not many people could get right. We're supposed to fight for those, cling to those, hold on to them, share them, tell others, okay? Galatians, Paul writes, there are some who are disturbing you. Meaning again, wolves in sheep's clothing that have crept into the church and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we, Paul's saying, if, if I go off the deep end someday or anybody else or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel other than what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. It is a once for all gospel shared with us 2,000 years ago, written down for us in God's word. We're to cling to it. It's not a living and changing thing. It's once for all, and we have to know it, and we have to cling to it, and we have to fight for it. So if you move on to a, a very famous passage uh, where, where we get to Matthew 28, the Great Commission. Many of you have heard this, seen this verse many, many times in, in your life. Uh, Matthew 28 says, and we'll see if we get forward to it, but I will read it now. Jesus says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Now, I'm not, I'm fully hopeful I know Jesus is on our side. I know the last word is Jesus cresting that hill in the morning light and saving us. But we're in a desperate situation. We have to cry out to Jesus now. Save us, Lord. Get us through. Save our kids. Save us at this time of darkness. But the key is a definition of a disciple is those who are observing, learning, teaching all that Jesus commanded us and that was written down for us in God's word. We need to be doing that. We need to know it. It's our job. We're expected to be the ones out there delivering that message. This isn't a message for Jimmy. Well, it is, but it's for all, okay? It's for you as much as it is for Jimmy, okay? Or someone like me or anybody else that, that, that you know. So we've got to cling to and love the truth, okay? Or... Or, or we will be in trouble. And God gives us over to delusion. Now, I know the church. We're, we're new here. Uh, we first started, I think, first visited in October. When we had moved back to Kansas City, it was right shortly thereafter COVID hit. And um, a bunch of folks from a small group I led 25 years ago before moving away got together and we created kind of a home church. And we've been meeting for, for quite some time. And Kind of in a, a moment this late last fall, we were like, I, I said, I'd like to get out and see what churches are still clinging to that truth and start visiting and, and kind of seeing we were led, led here. And, and, and so um, we got involved. Uh, Jimmy and Abby invited us into a discipleship group a couple months back. And that's probably how he knows I'm not, hopefully, not a crazy wolf in sheep clothing uh, and why he would trust me to teach up here. Um, but... Um, I know you taught through Romans over the past year. I wasn't here when you taught through Romans 1, but our own home church taught through it two years ago. And I just want to look at Romans 1. Super critical passage in the Bible. Again, a famous one. 
But look what it says to this issue of a battle for the truth that we're in today. And so we're just going to read it uh, section at a time and make an observation, okay? You can read along. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse, okay? The first observation I want you to make from this is that people are actively suppressing the truth. It's not, notice it doesn't say they were ignorant of the truth or they forgot the truth or any number of words like that. They just never were told the truth. It's they suppressed the truth. That's an active verb. You're out doing something. We're gonna shut down that message of the truth and tell you something else. Okay, so let's go on in the passage. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. They knew the truth. They suppressed the truth. They become futile in their speculations, but they cling to anything but God as their creator and as their ruler. The answer is, I don't care what the story is as long as it's not God. Now, in our modern day, what does that look like? We make ourselves out to be the God. We've, we've raised up from worshiping a, a lizard or the sun or the moon. We worship ourselves and we've said, I'm not even sure there is a creator. It's probably all happened by random chance. That's the world we live in today. Moving on in the passage. Therefore, God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity. Stress, God gave them over. You see that? It doesn't just say, the next bad thing they did was this. When you don't cling to the truth, when you continually reject God, God darkens your mind. That's what that's saying. God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them for they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever, amen. Again, anything but God as their Lord, mostly nowadays, ourselves. Live for yourself. What else did God give them over to? For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. For their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way, also the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another, men with men, committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their, of, of their error. You don't have to be a rocket science or go to seminary to interpret what that says. This is sexuality and direct opposition of God's design, plain and simple. Okay? Let's just not do what God said. Let's do what we want. And God gives you over to that when you don't cling to the truth. 
Moving on, Romans 1.28. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, their gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. It's a lot of bad stuff. I highlighted disobedient to parents because that seems unusually harsh in that list, right alongside murderers and every sort of invention of evil is just, and by the way, they disobey parents. That's how much God cares about children obeying their parents, us being respectful, all of, all of those things. Do we live in a world like that? Do, do, do you see anything up there? And, and the root cause of this is in the end, I, I just want to do what I want, not what God said. I don't really want a Lord. God gives me over to a depraved or a perverted or a distorted mind is what it says. And we end the passage by saying, and although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death. God's word in Romans 2 expands on this, says he put his word in our hearts. People know what's right. They knew the rules of God. They that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. You ultimately, at the end of the passage, when God keeps giving you over to the next worst thing, where do you end up? Celebrating the evil. We should have whole months to celebrate evil things. Okay? Okay? Where are we in that picture? Honestly, like this is actually, I, I'm, I'm, not, I, I'm not a pastor. I'm not a vocational pastor. I'm interested. Where are we in that picture? Yeah, we're, we're at the, the end of that chapter, right? There's not a part where saying, well, thank goodness we've not gotten to that yet. Okay, we're at the end of Romans chapter one, where God's given you over entirely. Okay, and we're promoting every form of godlessness. What's the antidote to that? You have to cling to the truth. If you don't cling to the truth, increasing levels of delusion God allows into your life. And then you can't hear the truth at some point anymore. Okay, now of course God and the Holy Spirit can break through that. I'm not, I'm not saying all hope is lost. I mean, in fact, for some reason, the imagery of Lord of the Rings, uh, Two Towers came to mind just this morning when laying in bed, kind of thinking through this. I, I don't know if you've seen that movie, but they, they have to fall back to this uh, keep at Helm's Deep, like a castle built into the rocks. And the orcs and all the evil forces of, of the two evil towers are descending upon them. And they're they're here, and the women and the kids have had to flee back into the inner holds, and they're, they're wrapped around the kids. You remember this scene if you've seen it, and, and the walls begin to be breached, and they're like, when are the, the forces coming to help us? We're, we're at the edge of it. That's where we're at. We need to look to the hill to our Lord and Savior Jesus to rescue us. He's got to crest that hill. We've got to call out to him. Okay, we've got to be ready to, to seize that moment when the white hill, 
white horse comes over that hill because we're struggling right now. That doesn't mean the Holy Spirit, if he's in you, you can stand. But you, you're, you're, you're arrayed against a massive army going against you. Cling to God's word. Hold on tight. So expect ever-increasing delusion and departure from God's truth as, as that return of the Lord draws near. Just like in that movie where, you know, Gandalf doesn't crest that hill till the last moment. You know, that's kind of the way the Bible lays it out. In fact, in 2 Thessalonians 2, if we read this, uh, it says, now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him. So Paul's saying, you know, in regards to the Lord's second coming that we've all been waiting for, now for 2,000 years, we've been hoping for it. When are you coming, Lord? How much more patient can you be? I'm sure every generation has thought things like this, right? We're at the moment, though. We need them. We need them to come, okay? He says, now, as it, as it regards to this, I want you to not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Evidently, people were circulating letters claiming to be from Paul saying things like, you know, the Lord already came back. You missed it. So Paul says, let me tell you what has to happen first. Okay. Let no one in any way deceive you. For it, meaning the Lord's second return, is not going to come unless the apostasy comes first. Pretty easy to interpret with the exception of one big word, apostasy. God is not going to return. Jesus is not coming back. He's not cresting that hill until a great apostasy has occurred. What's an apostasy? It is a falling away from the truth, a great departure. Now, there's always been falling away from the truth. So we, we, first John tells us already spirit of antichrist and falling away from the truth is in the world 2000 years ago. Okay. But there is a great apostasy coming that shakes up the whole world where the whole world must fall away or a lot of the church falls away. Okay. Second Thessalonians just slightly further in the passage, seven more verses later says they, meaning at this time, when the, the great apostasy occurs, he says, they, meaning those believers at that time, did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. Non-believers, I should say. The people in that last generation. For this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they will believe what is false in order that they all may be judged who did not believe the truth but took pleasure in wickedness. Do you notice how similar that is to Romans? Romans where if you didn't cling to the truth, God gives you over. He actually gives you over to the next phase of unbelief if you reject him long enough. That's what this is saying. Because they did not believe the truth, but actually chose wickedness over the truth, God gives them over increasingly to a full deluded mind. And this is at the end when the great apostasy occurs. And so I just want to throw a couple statistics up here. I'm not saying we're in the great apostasy, but I am saying a large apostasy is upon us. And it's a reason to be careful. So from 1986 to 2016 in the United States, the number of Americans age 18 to 29 who are basically atheist or agnostic went from about 10% to almost 40%, quadrupled in a 30-year time frame. That's a big change. 
Okay, let's go on. Let's look at another place. United States, this just shows all the generations, starting with like my grandparents' generation and then my parents, baby boomers, and then Gen X and millennials and younger millennials. And I don't have a good graph that shows like Gen Z on here, but it's the same trend where those that believe like evangelical Christian, born-again Christian beliefs is shrinking and the far right side, which is the unaffiliated, I just don't even care. I don't have any grows and grows and grows, okay? That's the United States. How about the rest of the world? Let's look. Canada, that's church attendance. Now, we know church attendance doesn't exactly equal belief, but if you're a believer, you should attend church, so uh, it has some correlation. That's church attendance since 1946 on the left to 2015 on the right. That doesn't seem like a good trend. Move on. How about England? That's from 1980 through 2005, church membership in England, okay? And it's just the specific churches, Uh, but half as many people at the end of that were going to church in England as at the beginning. Move on. New Zealand. This is an interesting chart because they have records going back to 1867 on the left side, all the way through 2015 on the right side, and Up until about 1965, you had a solid 95% of Kiwis, New Zealanders' nickname, uh, believing in uh, Christianity, or at least claiming Christianity. And then you have a precipitous fall and a huge rise of the green line, which is no religion. Okay? And I'm sure that trend has continued. Uh, Move on. It's just a simple way to say I don't know if that's the great apostasy, but it could be. It's a pretty large apostasy, okay? I'll go with, we are looking at a large apostasy. We'll see if that's the great apostasy. They got a lot of things wrong about Jesus's first coming. I'm not here to teach about Jesus's second coming because I assume we'll get a decent chunk wrong. But I do know that Paul warned us one thing has to happen before he comes, and it's a great falling away from the truth. And I can see a pretty large one has occurred. And so I sometimes cry out, God, crest the hill, come for us. We're weak, we are struggling, we need the helper. Come, come, Lord Jesus. That's what Maranatha means, if you've ever heard that term. Maranatha, Lord, come quickly. Okay, so moving on, last little bit. What can we do to counterattack? Okay, so... Go, go one slide forward. If we go back to the big picture of Romans 1, it's active suppression of the truth, followed by looking it for anything but God as the creator, sexuality in direct opposition to God's design, putting myself before all others, and promoting every form of godliness, or godlessness. I wish it was promoting every form of godliness. That's the big picture, and we said we're right in the middle of that. So I say, Where are the battlegrounds taking place on this front? Just stick them up there on the right-hand side. We could take the time to ask, but these are the big battlegrounds of the day we live in today, okay? And when I taught this two and a half years ago, uh, Romans 1, that is, uh, LGBTQ plus was long enough to put on that, and now it's officially like LGBTQIA2S plus, right? And I'm sure it'll be longer if I try to revisit this slide. And I'm not trying to pick on any one thing. 
okay? Like I'm not. That is not the, the end all be all. That's just one of many, many things. In fact, if I hit one that probably hits more, more at home here, look at sports and rec under putting myself above all others. Like, listen, I love sports. I love the Chiefs win a few weeks ago. I'm as big a Chiefs fan as there is in the whole world. I had two of my boys, my two oldest ran cross country and track up at KU. Um, we were a big sports family and, and pretty much that's what we watch on TV we, you know, when, when, we, when we watch. But when I was a kid, Sunday mornings were reserved for church still. Now when my kids, we have to make choices between games and, and church. That's just one small one. And I know a lot of families where that's a constant struggle and they end up choosing the sports. And so I, I'm simply saying like, I, I'm not picking on LGBT. I'm saying all these things are putting ourselves before God. We outlawed prayer in school in the 50s and 60s, et cetera, et cetera. That's suppression. See, that's active suppression. It's not just that it died out, which it might've died out anyway, okay? But it was suppressed out. It was ruled, you can't, you're not even allowed to do that anymore, okay? So these are the battlegrounds, and, and I put these up here because I want to ask a simple question. So slide one slide forward. How often are those things the focus on teaching in your family? Like when you're sitting around the table or driving in the car, or when you're here at church, or when you're meeting with your discipleship group, are these regularly talked about? Because these are the battlegrounds. If you go and say, why do we lose two-thirds of our kids? It's almost always evolution and LGBTQ. Almost always, those are the battlegrounds where our kids are told, look, you're bigoted if you believe that. Or you're an idiot and non-science loving if you believe that. And our kids get that every day, day after day after day after day. Are we surprised that they get snatched by the evil one? And so I'm just saying, we've got to make these the subject of regular talks, not like once a year where we say on like Sanctity of Life Sunday, we say something like, you know, you know we stand for life at this church, boom. And that's our, that's our statement uh, for the year, okay? It's gotta be more than that and it's gotta be in the home. And so if I could pick one thing, one takeaway from today, flip forward one, one slide, what would I ask you to do? I would start with memorizing Deuteronomy chapter six, verses four to nine. Every single one of you. I would beg you to do it because here's what it says. This is Moses speaking right before he dies. God's already told him you don't get to go into the promised land. He's 120. God's gonna snatch him away and he's gonna die. He has a last message to people that he's led for 40 years in this wilderness. All the great things he's done, this is it. And honestly, if I die tomorrow, this is the message I would have given. This is, this is all I care about in life. If I, if I gathered my kids to my side, I would probably tell basically these verses in this story, okay? But this is what Moses said on his death's edge. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. I'm gonna pause there and say, observation one, it's you. 
okay? First step is you need to know the truth. Notice he's not saying the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. Leaders like me and Joshua need to love God and cling to him and love him and then we will be blessed. Now, listen, do I want a leader who loves the Lord? Sure, I do. Do I want Jimmy to be a good pastor who teaches the truth? Of course. Okay, but the first and most important line of defense is you yourself. You're not an audience member soaking up, okay? You are in the fight. You have to get into the fight. It requires you to know it, not someone else. Not the youth group leader to teach your kids, not the, not the, the Sunday school teacher, not the Christian school, all which can be good things. It starts with you. So go to the next section. You shall teach them, meaning all these things that God's commanded us, you shall teach them diligently to your sons and daughters and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way. To us, that would be when you're driving in your SUV, when you lie down, and when you rise up. One of our songs today talked about when I lie down and when I get up, this song will be on my heart. That's not just our singers that need to be thinking that, okay? That's you need to be thinking that and doing that with your family and your kids. You shall bind these truths as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on your doorposts of your house and on your gates. My wife used to write little things like in some sort of dry erase marker on the mirrors of the kids when they were little. She still puts like post-it notes or things around the house. As I think about it, how wonderful my wife was at these things when the kids were little. An ambulance goes by. She would pray with the kids about wonder, you know, we don't know what happened, but let's pray for whoever that's going to be with. That's when you're coming and going all the time. So the big observation is you need to be discussing this stuff, God's word with your family all the time. Not just on Sunday after church where you say, what did you think of that message? Did you like that part? That's good. Every day, waking, going to bed, all of that stuff in between. Which means step one, you've got to know it. Step two, you've got to be sharing it. And so let's talk a couple practical things and, and wind this up. So Proverbs 20, 22, 6, or what did I just say? Proverbs 22, 6 says, train up a child in the way in which he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. My wife would always despair over something where the kids are getting in trouble or just not learning or arguing a lot or whatever. And I would say, well, they're not old yet, okay? And so even if your kids have fallen away from the truth, and I hope they're not part of that 66, but even if they have, they're not old yet. The Lord hasn't come yet. Let's rescue. Let's bring back to the fold, okay? But you've got a lot of time, so go ahead and put the observation up. It's gonna take some time. The rewards may not be now. They may be a lot later in their life. It may take you a while. If you've got the young kids, that's just the way it is. Move to the last verse. Proverbs 14, 12 and Proverbs 16, 25 are the same verse. Isn't that weird? You could memorize either one. Like, if you want a twofer, you memorize a single verse and you know two, 
This is it. It's a crazy verse. My dad made me memorize this when I was a kid. Think about this verse. There is a way which seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. My dad said, you know when you just think something's right? That's not typically always right. You go into your kids' elementary schools, you see a thousand signs that say things like, be who you want to be. Follow your dreams. That is a lie that leads to death. That's hard. I don't think a lot of Christians have grasped that letting your kids follow their dreams is not what God wants. Now, I'm not trying to squelch dreams, okay? Our dreams need to align with God's dreams. I have always had a dream of serving somehow this country. Guess what? I got to go fight in a lot of stuff, crazy stuff against Al-Qaeda. I got to live the dream that was in my heart aligned with God. So I'm not saying you don't follow your dreams, but what I am saying is because something seems right to us or we've always felt this way doesn't mean anything to God. His truth is above our truth. He is a thousand billion times better than we are. And we need to conform ourselves to him, not the other way around. And we're in a culture that says, do what you want. In fact, if anybody tells you not to do what you want, they're maybe the worst people on earth. Okay? So for us, practically, here's some, some stuff that, that, that comes up. And I forgot I had those two verses. So when I said practical earlier, I was thinking I was one slide ahead. So uh, go ahead and go forward. More than devotions, I call this. When I was a kid, maybe fifth grade, fourth grade, somewhere in there, I remember saying to my dad, you know, all of our other Christian friends at church, they do devotions. Why don't we? Now, I'm not about to argue against devotions. Don't get me wrong. Like if you have kids and you're putting them to bed each night and you have a, a daily devotional and you turn to this page and you do that, great. But my dad said something really interesting to me at that time. And I want you to think about it. He said, we don't do devotions here in our house because I like Deuteronomy 6. I like to talk about whatever we see happening in your life today and talk about that in light of scripture from a biblical worldview versus like, hey, you know, it's March 5th. And so on March 5th, it's this passage from this book and we're gonna read this, you know. Uh, there's not necessarily anything wrong with that. Don't, don't get me wrong. That's a good thing. But the most important thing you can do with your kids is teach them about what's happening to them now. The battles they're really facing, not what an author thought might be a good thing to teach on this day. Both can happen, but your first and foremost line of defense is know what's happening in your kid's life now and hold on to that. Does that make sense? Okay, all the time, every day. For you grandparents, my, uh, my oldest was the first of the grandkids from um, my three brothers, or my, my two brothers and I, the three, three of us. Um, and so he ended up setting the names of what the grandparents are called. Uh, it's supposed to be grandma and granddad on my, my side. But for some reason, he called my dad Popper. And so it just stuck. And then all the other kids afterwards called him that. And so it's now Grandma and Popper. And my parents started Grandma and Popper camp. If you're eight years old or over, you come for a week 
in the summer to grandma and papa camp. Okay, now they're up to like 10 of them attending and they've made a new rule this past year that's when you get married, you're no longer, you know, allowed to come, okay? Because my 20-year-olds still like to go, okay? So like all the 20-year-olds, because now the kids are older, okay? But what do they do at Grandma and Papa camp? It's like a summer camp. They have a, a, a theme. They have a T-shirt uh, that they get every year. They have a very regimented set of things they're doing. They, they have a big activity, maybe a sporting game or Worlds of Fun or a Royals game, Okay, but and they have movie night and they have like fancy dinner night where they have to learn etiquette and my mom teaches them all this sorts of stuff and they have to dress up and okay. But every morning they have a teaching time. And especially as the kids have gotten older, once they're about 12, they begin getting assignments where they had to teach a day. And they're given like a character of the Bible or, or different things. And my dad has figured all that out. But they have a theme and they teach on important things. And they teach on the sort of stuff like the evolution and the LGBT and all sorts of stuff that you wouldn't think would go on at grandma and papa camp, but it does. And the cousins learn together. If you are a grandparent, think about things like that. It has had enormous impact on my kids. So parents... Grandparents, first and foremost line of defense is your own kids and grandkids. Save them, because we're losing two-thirds of them, okay? Save them while we can. Call out for the Lord. Really, I'm, I'm out. I, I'll just end with, with a couple of comments. It is time for us to take a stand. We're at that moment, like in Lord of the Rings, where the wall's been breached and the, the final set of men who are surviving are like, okay, now's the time. Go up and fill those gaps. And women and kids go back in that hold and we don't know what's going to happen here. We're at that time. You've got to fill the gap. We've got to look to the writer, Jesus, cresting the hill and call out to him. It might not be the great apostasy, but it's a large apostasy. We've got to have him come fill our churches, and reawaken us to the truth. Now is the moment, okay? Now is the time to contend. And that's it. Let, let, let's pray. Lord, uh, I pray that somebody here will hear that and feel compelled to do something. Sometimes I don't even know what to do. Place on their hearts what they must do to save their kids, to save this generation. And Lord, come quickly, please. We need you in the morning light, you on your white horse to come, please, God. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Overland Park Community Church in Overland Park, Kansas. For more information, visit us online at overlandpark.cc.